Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. Thank you to Thesis for sponsoring this episode of the show. Thesis is the world's first customized nootropic company. People are thinking, well, what's a nootropic? And that is a compound or compounds found in nature or the human body with the opportunity to enhance cognitive function, whether it's become more creative, whether it's become more focused or have more energy, nootropics help brain function. And the reason I hooked up with Thesis is because they offer personalized nootropics, meaning it's not one size fits all. You go to their website, you take a quiz, you get a starter kit, you get optimized with a coach. It's pretty incredible. They have blends like I have never seen before. I love Logic and Logic helps me in deep focus. If you guys get into deep work, you can go to their website, go to takethesis.com slash Dr. Lion. These products have been a game changer for me. I have been using them since I did my first TEDx talk. You can get 10% off your first order, but I will tell you, you only need to use it if you want to have better brain function. Go to takethesis.com slash Dr. Lion for 10% off. Thank you to Element for sponsoring this episode of the show. I never go anywhere without my Element. It really helps in a number of ways. Element is a electrolyte solution. It has 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium in multiple different flavors. Here's why I love Element. I'm traveling a ton, but I'm doing these things that are constantly causing dehydration. And I feel it, whether I get muscle cramps or headaches, I use Element because it really, really helps me personally. I recommend it to my patients. I strongly suggest that you give it a try. You can go over to drinklmnt.com slash Dr. Lion. And when you use my code, you will get a eight flavor sample pack to try. So that way you can decide what you like and what you don't. But I guarantee you are going to love them all. And Element offers a no questions asked refund. So it's totally risk-free. Nick Verhoeven, soon to be PhD. Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show. I have to say, I am a huge fan of yours. I am so impressed by your translational ability to take studies and science and really break it down in a way that is incredibly easy to understand and probably most importantly, well, they're equally important, accurate. There's a lot of accuracy and intellectual integrity in what you do. And uh, thank you for everything that you're doing. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm incredibly humbled. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. You are a PhD candidate, and you're going to be finishing up your PhD in molecular medicine. And this is work in mitochondria, autophagy. Um, you also quite interestingly, hold a master's in exercise physiology, and you run Physionic, which everybody listening, you have got to check this out. I am a regular tuner-inner of Physionic. It is fantastic. 
I would love to hear a little bit about the research that you're doing, how you got to where you are, and get to know you, and for the listener to get to know you. Sure. Uh, yeah, where to begin? I think most scientists' origin stories uh, are... I guess kind of go back to 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 the very beginning of what what inspired them to get into science in the first place. But for me, uh, I was actually initially pursuing a psychology degree, and I actually ended up graduating with a psychology degree. And uh, it was it was you know how people go through their their college. If, if for, for those listeners that have been going have gone through college, they'll go through the first two three years, and then they'll maybe switch their major to something else because. They think, oh, they're actually more interested in this, and then ma maybe they'll switch it again and again and again. Well, I stuck to psychology for the full four years, and it was literally right after graduation that I realized I should not be doing psychology. <laughs> so I, I I spent a lot of money uh, to, to do that, to end up not pursuing that degree. Um, but I ended up switching gears to, to science because ultimately I got really into fitness during my, my psychology degree, and I kept – I was just – I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I'm sure I'm sure you, Dr. Lyon, have have gone through that yourself. I mean, that's why you've got your your MD and you've you've done so much work in in the field is because you just can't stop thinking about it, and it it overwhelms you. It takes takes over, and so I decided to go back to school, and I ended up, as you mentioned, getting my uh, master's degree in in exercise physiology, but then. I was still unsatisfied. I, I felt like I, I wanted to know so much more than just exercise, uh, although exercise is a fascinating field. Uh, so I ended up uh, going for, as you mentioned, my PhD in molecular medicine, so I could actually delve into, you know, looking at Alzheimer's, looking at cancer, looking at all these different uh, areas of health. So that's uh, that's where I am now. And in terms of my research, uh, we've been doing so. The lab that I work on, work in does a lot of mitochondrial work and autophagy work. And uh, actually, the the paper that I'm going to be published in is is actually quite different. It's going to be in uh, peroxisomes, which is not something that most people talk about because uh, they're kind of the uh, the ugly sibling of the uh, of mitochondria. Um, that is that is very, very funny. I, I would love to hear a little bit about what is molecular medicine and just some of the details of that, because I, I don't think a lot of the listeners or the viewers understand uh, what that is. Yeah, uh, you and me both, actually, when I, when I first uh, learned about it, <laughs> I... Uh, so again, I, I was I was extremely focused about getting a degree exactly in what I wanted to do. I was actually offered a, a PhD in, in physical therapy. I didn't know that existed, but apparently it does. So I ended up looking into molecular medicine, and it turns out that molecular medicine is essentially a degree that if you think of um, research into uh, drugs or in any sort of disease, that these researchers are kind of multifaceted. They they, they specialize in that particular degree and then start doing research just in, in that field. So they would do anything from cell biology, molecular biology. They might do some biochemistry. They might also go all the way up to physiology, which is I, I kind of fall between physiology and molecular biology, kind of between those two. So molecular or uh, molecular medicine extends from the real bottom, maybe not quite chemistry level, but a like a step above that all the way up to physiology, understanding how the heart works, understanding how the liver works and how they, the inter-organ relationships and things, things of that nature. 
And it is, it is uh, really fascinating and exactly uh, what you are mentioning to be this kind of interface. And I know that you are very interested in this concept of sarcopenia and certainly sarcopenia affects mitochondria or uh, who knows, it, it's possibly bidirectional. Please tell us a little bit about the some of these core concepts as it relates to significant health concerns, particularly to an aging population, which arguably we all are. Yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like I'm 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 describing something that you know more than I do about the topic. But I I, I have delved into a sarcopenia quite a lot um, during my master's degree. My research was actually related to uh, atrophy. So for the listener, atrophy is the the essentially the breakdown of your musculature. So it's the diminution of of your your musculature. And sarcopenia is an issue. I know that you've uh, discussed it in the past. But uh, sarcopenia is essentially a disease or a condition wherein a person will experience experience a significant decrease in their muscle mass, but not only muscle mass, also in the their ability to develop strength. And on top of that, something that's that's not as often discussed is the decrease in power output. So three things: muscle mass, strength, and power output. And that that can have dramatic effects on a person's health span and even on their their lifespan. Because as an individual, if you, I'm sure you've discussed this as well, but if you end up, let's say, breaking a hip or whatnot, the 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 studies really show that if you end up in a hospital because of a broken bone, especially if you're in your 70s, 80s, 90s the ability to recover from that is extremely small. And a lot of that is due to this massive drop in muscle mass and strength and power that is already on a down, a strong downward trend from just the aging process. So that's why it's, it's, it's incredibly important for both of those health span being to define that is just the ability to function within your within what you want to do if you want to to go for a walk if you want to be able to cut wood if you want to make coffee if you want to whatever it is you should be able to do that in the body that you have so the ability to live a fulfilled life within the life that you have and then lifespan is essentially just the extension of that life like how long are you actually alive and sarcopenia affects both of those yeah uh, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I saw that certainly as a, a geriatric fellow and, uh, you know, doing obesity medicine research, there's this increase in obesogenic sarcopenia. Your statement about power and the change in power as we age is critical. How would you define power and when do you think that we see it from an aging perspective versus a disuse perspective? And that might be somewhat of a splitting hairs question. But the reason I ask this is because oftentimes when people think about aging, there's this idea that there's an inevitable decline, which is potentially true. But the idea that power um, suddenly drops off may, may not be. And in fact, um, when you are young, establishing that and then taking that forward to aging. Yeah, power. The way I would define power is that you've got a time component 
when it comes to being able to develop strength. So if you are trying to move from point A to point B, the, the ability for your body, for your musculature to, uh, to recruit itself, to actually be able to accomplish that movement is, is how I would define power. So there is that time component of how quickly can you move from point A to point B. And they do these tests, and I, I, I for sure know that you know this as well, is that they have all kinds of different tests where they, they do that. It can be a sit-to-stand test. They might do uh, they might measure uh, how quickly a person can get up from from a, a chair, for example, or uh, the ability, or what's known as, a, I believe, a six minute walk test. Yeah. So they'll be able to, to researchers is what I mean by they. Um, they'll, they'll be able to determine uh, how many steps a person can take within a certain amount of time. So all those are kind of proxy measures of of power output. We can also do direct measures, which we usually do in in animal studies. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's this incredibly important aspect that when, when we think about it on the surface of things, we think of, you know, muscle mass, we think about strength, which are of course, incredibly important, especially strength. But, uh, we don't often think about the, the proxy that power has to our overall health. Um, and I think that that's something that in general, uh, I think that that's an area where when we talk about people that, especially around age 50 or so and going onwards, it starts to really starts to decrease, but then it really falls off uh, the, I don't know, the the proverbial um, peak where it should be, uh, I'd say around like 70, 80 years old, it really just drops off massively. I mean, you see these gigantic drops in power, which, I mean, a person might still be able to be relatively functional, but it really gives you an indication of something that really needs to be fought against to try to bump that back up to, to, to at least reasonable levels. Um, so that's, that's an area for, for at least in, in terms of sarcopenia that, uh, I think that is often overlooked. And I think it's something that there are ways of, of combating it, uh, which is of course, uh, why I think your, your podcast is so fantastic because you do do a lot of focus on, on, in, in that realm, uh, focusing on, on muscle strength and, and obviously it's going to have an impact on, on muscle power as well. Uh, it's certainly an underrepresented organ. It's just, um, where I think that skeletal muscle is highlighted is really in athletic performance and body composition, but from a medical perspective and improving quality of life, it is not packaged well and discussed in an appropriate body where it's usable and comprehensive. So that's, thank you. And that's one of the reasons why I do talk about it. This idea of power is it impacted from a mitochondrial perspective or a molecular perspective? Do you see changes with um, from uh, proteostasis or uh, mitophagy? Are there things that happen you think that directly affect the power from a, uh, again, an aging or hallmarks of aging perspective? Yeah, there's one huge one actually. Uh, which is one that I've been always been really fascinated by, but I haven't talked about uh, to a great degree yet. I, I certainly plan on discussing it more in the future, but it's it's the the consequence of what's known as muscle denervation that comes with uh, with aging. So 
for for the listener, your your muscle cells. Let's say you've got a grouping of muscle cells. That that grouping of muscle cells may be, let's just say, like ten muscle cells. That grouping of muscle cells is being controlled, in a manner of speaking, by a neuron, so a nerve cell that extends from a part of your body, let's say your spine, and that nerve cell will then control or or activate your muscle cells to either contract, to, to usually contract. And so you've got a single neuron, a single muscle, a uh, single nerve cell that's forcing these muscle cells to contract. And that's how we generate strength. That's how we generate power. However, with the aging process, as we've just been, we, we've been talking about, you could see this decrease in muscle size and the muscle function. But what's not as readily discussed, and there's more and more research coming out, is the, the disconnect between that neuron. So your brain's ability or your spinal cord's ability to activate those muscle cells, that starts to dissipate as the neuron starts to pull away from the muscle cells. So that one neuron has control over 10 muscle cells. I'm just throwing out a number. Usually it's, you know, it can be a lot more, it can be a lot less depending on the neuron. That alone, if you think about that, you're you're essentially removing your ability to activate 10 or 100 or 1,000 muscle cells, even though the muscle cells themselves may be perfectly fine. But because that connection is no longer there, you, th- those muscle cells atrophy, which is going back to, to what I defined earlier, is this rapid diminution of these muscle cells incredibly quickly, simply because their activator has disappeared. And that symbiotic relationship between these two cells, the nerve cell and the muscle cell, is an area that, I mean, without even going into the muscle cell, can have this tremendous effect. And I do think that, uh, well, as a matter of fact, there's, there's this review that talks about mitochondrial health and how mitochondria can affect this process because the there's this constant crosstalk between the nerve cell and the muscle cell. So the muscle cell is constantly, if you want to put it in in kind of simplistic terms, convincing the the nerve cell to stick around, to to stay in close proximity. The nerve cell is constantly sending chemicals back to the muscle cell to indicate, okay, I'm activating, I'm I'm nearby, you know, I'm the support system, and with mitochondrial dysfunction, which would be like damage of mitochondria. That could be the, again, the diminution of mitochondria. That may be uh, just overall mitochondria inability to uh, generate uh, the correct signals for the rest of the cell, may not be able to generate ATP, which is the cellular uh, energy of, of the cell. So with mitochondrial dysfunction, what can happen is you see a drop in the ATP levels or the 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 energy state of the muscle cell, which then can thereby lead to a, a, a change in the types of molecules that are released to the neuron. And if that happens over time, you, you start to accrue insult between those two systems, between the nerve cell and the, the muscle cell. And the nerve cell starts to separate itself slowly from the muscle cell, and therefore the muscle cell starts to decrease. Now, on top of that, that if if that happens, let's say, to a single muscle cell in that that population of let's say ten muscle cells that the neuron activates, it can actually start to influence nearby cells a little bit like uh, 
I'm sure you've discussed this before as well, but senescence. So if you have a senescent cell, which is this kind of dormant uh, cell, which, which is an incredibly simplistic way to look at senescence, but I'll, I'll put that aside for a second. You have this kind of zombie-like or dormant cell that can start to secrete these different factors that also affect all the nearby cells. And the exact same thing can happen with muscle cells and the neuron. So mitochondria can have a direct effect. And there are many other different pathways that, that have this, this tremendous effect on denervation of, of the, uh, the musculature. It's, it's really fascinating. And is the review the mitochondrial impairment in sarcopenia? Is that the review that you're referring to? That's the okay, one. Wonderful. So we will link that and we've put together a quick summary for the viewer and listener. And of course, I'm sure that it's covered in Physionic, which, you know, listen, I don't want to tell you guys about Physionic because if I do, you're no longer going to watch my podcast and you are going to be binge watching <laughs> Nick and his um, very funny jokes. He's, he's extremely funny. And just to recap and, and not to get off track talking about your funny jokes, but is are you talking about the neuromuscular junction? Are you talking about um, components of the neuromuscular junction, essentially? Yes, that's exactly it. So that 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 separation between the neuron and the muscle is extremely small, and that starts to widen as as the denervation process occurs. So what I'm hearing you say is there is this. Um, lack of stimulus, lack of signals, which then ultimately, and again, this, these are very complex processes that then affect the mitochondria. The mitochondria become a bit dysregulated. They are not utilizing ATP and the chemical signals that they should in an appropriate way. This ultimately, the major end product of this culmination of issues is atrophy, which is obviously we know the change in tissue, the loss in tissue and um, can also affect nearby, have a cascade effect on nearby muscles. Does it also affect, I'm assuming, muscle satellite cells and um, just even the metabolism of skeletal muscle in and of itself? Satellite cells, to be honest, I they didn't discuss it in the review to any great degree. And I haven't looked at the, the effect that it has on satellite cells. I do know that I guess I can, I can speculate a little bit here, but if, um, if you, if you were to lose the connection between the neuron and the musculature, you're no longer, you, you no longer have the ability for the musculature to be activated by its chemical components. So the, the release of neurotransmitters, uh, which would then have an effect on calcium within the musculature. I'm not going to go into that because I, I don't. I, I don't want to get too too into the weeds. But the point being that you have this this again this chemical crosstalk between the neurons and and the musculature. So if you remove that, and you no longer allow the musculature to have the potential for growth, then the satellite cells. Are going, it, it, they're not going to be able to actually integrate with the, the musculature or not have that drive to, to integrate with the, the musculature. So I, my speculation is that yes, at least by an indirect means, it would have an effect on the muscle cells. Now, from a metabolism standpoint, oh, absolutely. If you, if you have mitochondrial dysfunction, there are any number of, of problems that occur uh, with the musculature. So you usually see a decrease in what's known as fat oxidation. So to define that for the audience, 
um, when you consume the nutrient fat, so the molecule fat, not to be confused with the, the cell, the adipocyte, the actual fat cell, the molecule fat will enter into any cell, but let's, let's stick to the muscle cell. So it'll enter into the muscle cell using these transporters, which are conveniently called fat, F-A-T, so fatty acid transporters. And then those fat molecules will then enter into the mitochondrion through some other transporters that get activated, get turn, uh, sent into the mitochondria, and then there they get chopped up. Think of like cutting up like an onion. They just get chopped up, and you have these little components that then go through uh, this whole what's known as an oxidation process, which then ultimately spits out ATP, which is what we were talking about earlier. So this cellular energy. So the ability to do that is goes hand in hand with overall health. So if our metabolism is unable to go through this fatty oxidation process, then you start to have some serious problems across the board. So like insulin resistance as, as one prime example. So with mitochondrial dysfunction, it's not only just affecting this denervation process, it's also affecting the actual health of the musculature. Because again, the drive, again, I'll say it for the fifth time, I'm sure you've covered this before as well, that the, the drive for uh, the muscle cells to, to, to be healthy and to function and whatnot is by creating essentially a sink. So when you exercise, right? So you're moving, you're, you're using a ton of ATP. I mean, it is cellular energy for a reason. So it gets sucked up and used up to such a tremendous degree that if then you were to never exercise or you were to actually remove the ability for the muscle cell to, to reap the benefits of exercise with this denervation process, for example, then you are effectively lowering the ability for your muscle cells to actually uh, continuously suck up this this fat these fat molecules, so that can have tremendous effects on on our metabolism. And then when you think about it, uh, muscle is such a common tissue in our entire body that if that were to happen over and over and over again, and you see again this precipitous drop in power and, and muscle and muscle strength and all that stuff, it's it's going to have a tremendous effect on your metabolism. Absolutely. And, um, and I, I think that number one, people oftentimes don't appreciate that the primary fuel for skeletal muscle at rest is fatty acids. People always think about glucose. It is the uh, primary site for glucose disposal, but at rest, the requirement is to have healthy mitochondria to be able to utilize these fatty acids. What do you believe can be done? What are some of the things that can help with mitochondrial health in a preventative aspect? I'm going to shock people here. It's. Uh, I love it when you shock <laughs> people. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm definitely going to shock people by by screaming the word exercise for the billionth time. <laughs> but I mean, honestly, there's just there's just nothing nearly as powerful as as exercise, um, and that can go for any type of exercise. But certainly aerobic training, uh, because it specifically affects mitochondria uh, through a number of mechanisms, which I'd be happy to go into as well. But uh, exercise is is such a massive uh, such a massive way of of improving your your mitochondria in in so many different ways. Uh, from the mitochondrial number to 
the mitochondrial quality from, from each mitochondria being able to oxidize more fat, uh, to, to, you literally have a shift in. So there's, there's another condition where, uh, with, with sarcopenia, where you have this intramuscular, uh, fat. So the, so fat will actually accumulate inside of the muscle cell itself. And the, the proportion of where that fat is located in the muscle cell can actually have an effect on the health of the muscle cell. So if you exercise, you can also shift, which is wild. It's, it's actually called the, the athlete's paradox because it actually happens in, in athletes as well, that you can have this shift of these lipid droplets. So there's just sacks of, of fat that get placed actually closer to mitochondria in a healthy individual. And they get placed in other areas of, of the, the cell in sarcopenic or uh, obese individuals. So there's, there's all kinds of different ways that exercise can have these tremendous effects on, on mitochondria. Again, quality, number, but also the placement of the nutrients and, and much more on top of that. So that's, that's certainly the number one thing. I, I struggle sometimes to think of like nutrition interventions, but generally, yeah, just exercise. Aerobics, certainly, but lifting weights is also a, a, a fantastic way to go. I really appreciate that. The idea of these uh, intramuscular, the intramuscular adipose tissue athletes paradox, really important. And, you know, eventually there is a change in tissue for an individual who is not healthy and aging in this way where they're not creating flux, they're not exercising. These lipid droplets remain. Eventually you do see connective tissue changes, fibrosis happen. It's, it's not a good situation. This is going to be an obvious question, but I think talking about some of the basic stuff, uh, basic information for the listener who's perhaps just turning this on, why would one care about the number of mitochondria? Why would they even care about the health of mitochondria? Is it something that um, requires a particular amount of stimulus? Do we know that the input should be 150 minutes a week? Do we know that it'll be roughly 60 minutes to begin to mobilize intramuscular adipose tissue? You know, how can we think about this in an action-oriented way that provides specific benefit? Yeah, that's a that's a really great question. So, when we think about mitochondria, we shouldn't. I mean, we've people often, you know, have these flashbacks to biology class of the powerhouse of the cell, which is absolutely true. I, I, I don't want to deny. It's not like I want to get on here and say that uh, you know your biology teacher was lying to you all these years. Uh, that's that's certainly but all you're true. You're saying that they might be. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, so mitochondria definitely have uh, have the they are the the main area of our cells that actually generate uh, cellular energy. So that's that's one aspect. I mean, which has a tremendous effect. I don't even think the word tremendous. I don't think the adjective tremendous speaks to exactly how important this is. I mean, we're we're talking about life changing. If you if you if you have these dips, even small dips in ATP levels, again, just to remind everyone, that's the cellular energy of the the the, the cell. Uh, it can have profound effects on the entire cell. Just can can slow down. It's it's like it barely functions anymore. So having these mitochondria that are healthy, that are full, that are 
uh, generating optimal amounts of ATP is is critical to literally every single cell of your body, with the exception of very few cells like red blood cells, which don't have uh, mitochondria. So, so that's that's one way that mitochondria are incredibly helpful uh, or critical, I should say. But on top of that, they also are huge generators of reactive oxygen species. So when we think of like oxidative stress, so for the listener, oxidative stress is just, uh, you have these, this generation of these uh, chemicals, these, these molecules that are in a, I usually describe it as unsatisfied. I mean, a chemist would probably <laughs> scream, but let's just, let's just run with it. So they, they, they're these unsatisfied molecules that rip away at other molecules. So your cells are made up of millions of functional molecules. They all serve a particular function. And when you start to rip away at those, then obviously you're going to have a less functional cell. So mitochondria generate those molecules. And you'd be thinking, well, why, why, why would you do that to us? But the reality is that these reactive oxygen species, they also serve a purpose. So they actually serve a positive purpose as they can act as, as a signaling molecule. So they can, they can uh, affect cells that they're supposed to affect and therefore propagate a signal within the, 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 the cell. And however, if you have too much of them, so if you're producing too many, which tends to rise as we age, so we start to produce more and more of these reactive oxygen species. And on top of that, we also have uh, a, a decrease in our ability to eliminate them. So through what are known as antioxidant means, uh, then you start to damage the cell more than you're able to repair the cell. And this, of course, occurs uh, to mitochondria as well. So you start to damage the mitochondria. So having healthy mitochondria can have an effect on your cellular energy state, which has tremendous effects, which I, I mean, it's, it's a whole field in its own right. And then on top of that, it can have an effect on oxidation. So the, the, the oxidative stress that builds up in, in your cells. And on top of that, let's, let's add one more. Um, it can also have an effect on your, your cell signaling. So your mitochondria are also very much in tune with cell signaling. And I'll, I'll give you, give you an example. So your mitochondria actually are one of the two ways that your cells either decide to kill themselves or to remain alive. And you would, you want that cell signaling process to work extremely well because it's one way that we're able to prevent cancer. So if your, if your mitochondria are in tune with the ability to, uh, okay, we need to release particular factors that ultimately lead the cell to die, then that's that's a positive thing. They're not going to do it willy-nilly. They're going to do it specifically exactly when they're primed to. But when you want the cell to to essentially succumb to in a in a in a word, it's it's kind of tough to an anthropomorphize the the cell. But let's say that the cell decides or needs to essentially eliminate itself because it sees itself turning into a senescent cell or it sees itself going into a, a kind of a cancerous path, then you want mitochondria to be able to release these factors and essentially tell the rest of the cell, okay, we've decided we're now going to go through this, what's known as uh, mitochondrial dependent apoptosis or cell death. So that's three. And there's many other factors that lead to mitochondria having, or you, you a person wanting healthy functioning mitochondria. And you could go into mitophagy, autophagy, and all that stuff. Now, in terms of the amount of exercise, uh, usually 
the recommendation, I, whenever I talk about that, I, I usually talk about recommendations based off of what the ACSM says. So the American College of Sports Medicine. Um, I, I don't think, I don't know if we've ever gotten granular enough to say exactly like, I, I know that the ACSM, at least the last time I checked their guidelines, which was a number of years ago, so this may be slightly outdated. They said that the minimum was 10 minutes of physical activity, which is really, really low to, to just start to see some benefits. Now, obviously more is going to be better up to a point. Now, exactly what that point is, I think if I remember correctly, I think you, you actually said it yourself is 150 minutes uh, per week, something along those lines. Maybe it may be a little bit more, but also that depends on the intensity of the exercise. If it's moderate intensity or vigorous intensity, which is usually based on what's known as a heart rate reserve calculator, which is a proxy of VO2, which I'm sure you've uh, discussed VO2 as well uh, in the past. That's um, it's really interesting, especially because I I believe that mitochondria is this hot word, mitochondria, autophagy, mitophagy. There is potentially a lot of confusion in the the space surrounding the things that actually influence this. What does it mean? What does it mean for the health of an individual? Could an individual fast for I don't know a day and then improve autophagy, or is that not true? What are some of the misconceptions about this idea of autophagy or mitophagy that you would correct for us? Because I, I think hearing it from you, someone who studies this would be really, really helpful. Yeah, it's a fantastic question. Uh, we definitely can tell by your excitement. <laughs> well, you ask me any question about science, I'm going to get excited. <laughs> um Okay, so autophagy, just to define it for, for everyone, is so if when your cells need to break down something inside of themselves, so your, your cells can't constantly be building and building and building. Think of like a room, you just can't keep adding and adding and adding. Eventually, you need to start taking stuff out. And usually, you try to take the, out the stuff that you're no longer using or that it's that's broken for, for whatever reason. So, your cells do the exact same, exact same thing. So, you have uh, you even mentioned the word before proteostasis. So you have, uh, more protein synthesis or you have protein degradation, protein synthesis being the buildup of, of any particular malt, like a particular protein, but we're talking about the other side. So we're talking about protein degradation, which, which falls into three major camps. So you have, uh, the proteolysis through like the cleavage enzymes, um, you have the proteasome, which is a particular, it's, it, it's a funky looking little molecule that essentially grabs onto tagged proteins and funnels them through this, what literally looks like a funnel and then just spits out the broken pieces at the other end. And then you have autophagy, which is this typically considered macro autophagy where you have this, like this sack almost like think of like a garbage bag. And it's almost like floating in, in water, which is what our cells are primarily made of. And it will engulf these large swaths, these swaths of the cell where you may have mitochondria, you may have parts of the endoplasmic reticulum or the peroxisomes that I mentioned earlier that nobody talks about, or uh, it, it just anything, any number of different proteins. So... And then once it, it it sucks them up, 
I think a great analogy of that is like, if you've ever seen a whale eating krill, it opens its mouth and it's just this massive thing that just sucks up all this krill. And once it's got it trapped into in the sack, it'll close the sack and then another vessel, another sack will come in and bind with the, the previous one, which ultimately leads to the production of what's known as the autolysosome. Now, the autolysosome drops the pH of the autophagy machinery of, this, of these sacks, and it also introduces a bunch of degradation enzymes. So whatever's inside, whatever's trapped inside that sack gets bombarded with a bunch of quote-unquote toxic materials that are specifically designed to just eliminate just those sections of, of the cell. So that's a background on autophagy, and that's a good thing to have in general. So in a healthy individual, you're, you're going to have certain levels of autophagy. It's going to go from high levels at certain points to low levels at other points. So that's fine, and, and that's how typically people think about it. And exercise is a potent stimulator of autophagy in a beneficial way. Uh, you know, certain levels of fasting can can increase uh, autophagy. There's all kinds of different ways that you can increase autophagy. But does that necessarily mean that it's always a good thing? The answer is absolutely not. Um, so, I, I've I've been doing some reading on autophagy, some weird things that autophagy does that are kind of unexplained in fat tissue. But uh, I'll I'll leave those for for another time. But the the great example of that is in cancer, cancer cells can actually use autophagy for their own benefit. So, and the, the one question that I get, or I guess two questions that I get related to this is then, okay, what cancers and, uh, is it, is it this particular cancer? You know, does that mean that autophagy is then a negative? Uh, the answer is no, that doesn't mean that autophagy is always a negative then just because in certain cancers you can get uh, an upregulation of autophagy. It just means that certain cancers can hijack this system in a manner of speaking and use it to, to their own benefit. And there was this uh, study that was done where there was uh, this particular study that was, or this particular cancer, excuse me, that was uh, being studied. And they found that when they used, uh, let's say, a chemotherapy drug or some sort of drug against that cancer, it had some effect for a while and then it stopped having that effect anymore. So what they posited was okay, well, let's see what happens when we block autophagy. And suddenly it became far, far more effective. And the reason for that is because the cancer cell was using autophagy to trap the chemotherapy drug, degrade it, and then eliminate it. So the answer is that autophagy is always, a, just like anything in the body, is an incredibly nuanced conversation. But by and large, I think the way that people should consider autophagy in their day-to-day -day lives is that if you're generally healthy, you're not suffering from any major issues, then autophagy is generally seen as a, as a positive. And would you say that it's happening no matter what? There, uh, exercise is, is likely probably the greatest stimulus. Are we going to, mm. would it be fair to say that if you are going into an overnight fast, you are generating some type of autophagy and um, it's not necessarily measured in a particular way, just to clear up some of the just discussions around autophagy? Thank you to Inside Tracker for sponsoring this episode of the show. Hey guys, it's time. It's time to get your blood work done. If you have been putting it off, here is your reminder. 
People need to look at their blood work to see what they are doing is working. This is data that you must collect, whether it is your complete metabolic panel, whether it is looking at your liver enzymes or inflammatory markers or markers that will show your biological age, Inside Tracker has you covered. You can go to insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. They are generously offering 20% off everything. So just pick what you want, whether it's inner age, whatever action plan you want, but it's important. It's important to knock out. This was created by leading scientists in aging and genetics. Inside Tracker analyzes your blood. You can go to a lab draw. You can get a home draw, which is super convenient. There's no excuses to get healthy right now. For a limited time only, get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. That's insidetracker.com slash Dr. Lion. Thank you to Timeline for sponsoring this episode of the show. Timeline makes a product called MitoPure. MitoPure is extraordinary. It has urolithin A in it. It is evidence-based. It is scientifically backed. MitoPure helps our mitochondria produce energy more efficiently by triggering our body's natural cellular renewal process. If you care about muscle-centric medicine, then you definitely care about the health of your mitochondria because these are the organelles which power the body. The health of the mitochondria changes as you age. You do need to go through periods of regeneration and mitophagy, which is cleaning out the old mitochondria. Urolithin A is a postbiotic. It's clinically tested. It has been shown to improve mitophagy, even strength and endurance. Urolithin A is going to be the next big thing. You know, remember when fish oil came out and that was the thing? This is the thing. If you haven't tried it, you are late to the game, but it's better to be late than never. Go to timelinenutrition.com slash Dr. Lion. That's timelinenutrition.com slash Dr. Lion to get 10% off your order. So yes, definitely. Uh, our body is constantly in flux and that's true of really any situation. Proteostasis is another example. So if we were to go one layer higher than autophagy, so that's, that's certainly true for autophagy. If you, uh, if you're just existing, you're going to have periods where autophagy is more upregulated and sometimes it has nothing to do with nutrient consumption. It's just increased because maybe you got sick. So your, your, your cells have to increase what's known as xenophagy. So they try to eliminate viruses and eliminate bacteria by increasing autophagy. And it doesn't matter if you've been eating protein or if it doesn't matter if you've been fasting for three days or it doesn't matter if you've been exercising. It's just going to force autophagy because it has to. Uh, but that's why it's it's generally the best to try to look at kind of averages and kind of look at a, at a healthy individual uh, as a whole. Uh, because they are going to see increases and decreases in autophagy that may be beyond their control, even though some elements are in our control. Mm. And and would you say, so for you, when you are thinking about your overall musculature, health and wellness and your mitochondria, is that something that is on your mind or you're just executing the day-to-day -day activities like making sure you're creating flux, making sure that you are exercising? And you know, I do want to talk about 
the impact that exercise has versus resistance training and endurance or cardiovascular, you'd mentioned zone two, as opposed to high intensity interval training. Are there multiple ways to get to one result? So with the, uh, the, f- the last part of that question, the answer is definitely yes. So especially if you're talking about autophagy, there's there isn't a whole lot of data on, on exercise and autophagy yet, mainly because autophagy is just discovered or really there's there's been a lot more research just recently. So the, the research really hasn't caught up to that. But my my educated guess would be that absolutely yes. Uh, there's any form of exercise is going to increase autophagy. I wouldn't I don't think you may, you may, end, we may end up figuring out like maybe resistance training may be better in certain circumstances. Like for example, resistance training is a, is a good example of proteostasis. Again, taking that one level higher, you know, prote- autophagy being under the label of proteostasis, uh, resistance training can increase degradation for a short period of time where it tries to clear out uh, particular broken pieces of the musculature or whatever it might be. So for that, autophagy is probably going to be upregulated exactly for that for that process. Um, but I probably, at this point, I probably wouldn't worry about exactly which exercise is going to be superior to another exercise simply because at least there's no research yet on that. Now, in five years from now, the answer is probably going to end up changing. Um, and to be honest with you, I forgot the, the first part of your question. The influence. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. You know, I'm, I'm just so interested in what you're saying. So if I bunch the questions, I can just listen to you. you no, it's okay. The, the first part of the question is, is there particular influence depending on the activity? If someone is doing a high-intensity interval training for the outcome of having healthy mitochondria. Obviously, there's different fiber types in skeletal muscle, um, Mm. but the influence on the health of mitochondria, because again, we hear a lot about zone two training. We hear a lot about resistance. We do, we're beginning to hear more and more about high intensity interval training and what effect that has on, I suppose you could say, even the fiber type and then the subsequent mitochondria, but um, the influences on those things. So, yeah, once once you start to extend the scope to beyond autophagy, because uh, I, I just went over, you know, autophagy, we don't have enough data on exactly which exercise modalities, but we do know exercise definitely increases autophagy. Um, if we start to extend the scope to, let's say, fiber type or which when we're talking about fiber type for the listener, we're talking about uh, muscle cells. So muscle cells are, can also be considered fibers. So they're kind of synonymous. They, they go back and forth. You know, some people say fiber, some people say muscle cells, some people say myocyte. Um, when you're talking about fiber type, it does matter uh, what type of exercise that you do. So you would do like cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular exercise. So cardio of some sort. And so that would be like long distance exercise, something that you can do for, for long periods of time. Admittedly, I haven't done much research into zone two specifically, so I can't look, so I can't speak to that yet. Uh, but what we do know is that it tends to have a tremendous effect on really all fiber types, but especially the type one, which is the, the red oxidative fiber types. And if we go back to the very beginning of our conversation, talking about 
how mitochondria, if they have this sink, they, they are able to take up these fatty acids, these fat molecules, and oxidize them and generate ATP for, for, for the cell. Well, that's where cardiovascular exercise is incredibly helpful in that it does specifically affect mitochondria in that it increases a protein called PGC1-alpha. Now, PGC1-alpha is a coactivator so it'll enter the nucleus of our cells and coactivate a host of other proteins that are specifically related to mitochondria. It'll also have an effect on autophagy as well, but it'll, uh, it's most well-known for its effects on mitochondria. So once you have more PGC1-alpha, you have more activity of PGC1-alpha, you tend to have more mitochondria generation. So you get mitochondrial biogenesis, which is the creation of new mitochondria. Uh, on top of that, you tend to have more mitophagy, which is the autophagy of mitochondria. So the reason why you would want to do that or your cell would want to do that is because, again, your mitochondria are generating reactive oxygen species. They're causing so much damage to themselves that uh, you do have times when, and this is a really cool process, where your mitochondria will actually combine. So you'll have a really damaged mitochondria and a really healthy mitochondria. And sometimes they'll actually combine. They'll go through a process called fusion. And that's to essentially mix up everything. And then they'll, they'll separate out all the negative components into one section of the mitochondria and essentially eject those back out. And that's through a process called fission. And then you'll have this small mitochondria that's completely dysfunctional. And that's when the autophagy machinery comes in because it'll be tagged. Uh, for degradation, the autophagy machine will come in and remove it. So exercise, cardiovascular exercise has a tremendous effect on that. Now, in terms of resistance training, uh, that tends to be more type two. Uh, although again, it's not like, it's not like there are these hard right. cutoffs where, you know, fiber types go down these, like uh, march down the aisle and they they get designated your type one, your type two. Um, and you can only get a benefit from one thing or another. Um, ultimately it's, it's going to, it's going to have an effect on the entire scope of, of the, the different fiber types and whatnot. But resistance training has an effect on the size of the musculature. It can have an effect on uh, the different contractile components. So like myosin and actin, and, uh, and it can have an effect on how much glycogen is stored in our musculature. Uh, it can ha which is uh, stored glucose for, for those that are listening, um, actin and myosin are contractile components of, of the cell. So it, it's, they're, they're, it's definitely going to lean one way or another with cardiovascular exercise or, or resistance training, but they're going to have a ton of crossover. And there's such a thing as fiber type switching, which isn't a completely permanent process, but you can have, which is usually defined. So the fiber types are usually defined at least one of the ways that they're defined is by the type of myosin that's found within, within the, the muscle cell. Uh, myosin, again, being one of those contractile components that allows the muscle cell to, to squeeze together or to, to elongate. Um, and so, yeah, resistance training can have an effect on, on fiber type switching as well. And with, if we go back to sarcopenia, if we see a loss in, we typically see, especially with diabetes, obesity, and sarcopenia, we tend to see a loss in type two fibers. So the ability to, to fight that and encourage the muscle cell to, to maintain those, those muscle fibers can be absolutely invaluable. Yeah. Uh, we, we certainly 
do see a change in uh, fiber types. And you guys can witness that when you see an older individual get skinnier. We've all seen our parents, sorry, dad, our grandparents get skinnier and, and it's thought to be due to a change in fiber type. What about high intensity interval training and what about power generation? How do we train for power? High intensity interval training is a great kind of middle ground between the two. So you can reap some of the benefits from cardiovascular exercise and you can reap some of the benefits from uh, resistance training because, and it, it is, uh, as you're alluding, it's, it's a fantastic way to also increase your, your power output. Uh, mainly because it's burst. I mean, when you think of power, you should be thinking about burst. Like again, it's that time component. It's not just, can you do it, which would be like strength, but can you do it extremely quickly, as quickly as you possibly can? And high intensity interval training is a great way to figure out and try to push your body to adapt back to increasing that power output. Again, because you're, you're, you're massively telling the nerves, the, the neurons to to constantly engage with the musculature as quickly as possible. And you'll get a lot more, for example, we were talking about the neuromuscular junction that, that, that can, I, well, we'll call it a connection, even though they're not physical connections, but a, a very close proximity connection between the, the nerve cell and the muscle that can actually widen and it can deepen as well. So you have these trenches in, in, in the muscle cell, um, in the muscle membrane and that those can actually widen or they can widen or they can uh, become much deeper. And that tends to be because the, this connection is, is strengthening. And I would imagine that that probably has quite an effect on, on power output. And I think that high intensity interval training probably has a pretty significant effect on, on those kinds of metrics. So yeah, I, I think that it's a, it's a great way to go. I'm not going to do it because I, I can't stand uh -huh. it, but I mean, for anybody, for everybody, for, else. For anybody else that, that wants to, yeah, for anybody else that wants to do it, I, I stick to, to resistance training myself. But yeah, it's it it is a great great way to go. And basically, what you're saying is, if you don't use it, you lose it. I personally recommend people doing high intensity interval training because exactly for the reasons that you're speaking about and being able to generate that power quickly. You know, you mentioned reactive oxygen species. There's a lot of information on supplementation. Are there particular supplements that you find valuable? Because one of the things that you do in your work is you do look at a large a body of literature and you're very clear as to where the literature is coming from, the quality of the studies. Are there certain supplements, again, that you have found valuable? Yes. Uh, I, I'm incredibly conservative when it comes to supplement recommendations simply because there's, there's a lot of different criteria that people that, that supplements, supplement companies, supplement research in general has to fit. Uh, so I look at, you know, things like effect size or the, the duration of an effect or what it specifically affects. Like if it affects mitochondria, okay, that's great. But then does it actually affect uh, the whole cell? And then if it affects the whole cell, can we actually measure that in clinical outcomes and stuff like that? So I tend to be really conservative. Uh, there, there are, I'll mention two. So one of them, I, I'm, I feel for certain that you've discussed in the past, which is creatine. Um, creatine has hundreds of studies behind it. And uh, there, there's some evidence that it actually specifically affects mitochondria as well. 
Um, so it can help in the health of, of mitochondria, mainly because there's this enzyme called creatine kinase that it uh, binds with. And creatine kinase is actually also found in the uh, in a particular section of the mitochondrion. So I think they're still trying to figure out exactly why it's located there, but it seems to have uh, a, a positive impact. And it may potentially be in that it allows for the energy transfer from inside the mitochondria to back outside of the mitochondria where it actually gets used, the, the ATP. Um, so that's that's one that's, that's really huge. Uh, another one... And that has an effect on on the brain musculature. There's there's a lot of data coming out on and, that. And one uh, thing, and I want to stop you for a second out. because you did point out something sure. that I thought was really really great is that creatine impact creatine's impact on the brain. I think there's still question out there, but certainly if you're older, if you are an older individual, there seems to be even higher evidence to support creatine use in an aging individual. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's such a fantastic point. I'm glad you you mentioned that because that's so true. Uh, so the research I've looked at in creatine on the brain has been really specific to older individuals. So the the benefit has been far more for older individuals. Uh, so taking creatine has helped with uh, different indices of memory, but I've also looked at some research on other neurological uh, outputs, and and it seems like it has an impact there as well. Uh, so the effect is is far stronger uh, for for older individuals. That may be probably because there's a drop in in creatine concentration. So our body actually has two different creatine systems. It, it has a creatine system in the brain, and it has one for the rest of the body. So and they they aren't uh, synonymous. So every once in a while, so if you if you supplement with creatine. Uh, typically, your your endogenous or your your body's production of creatine decreases, and people get really worried. They think, well, then am I shutting that down? Will I not be able to to have my creatine synthesis come back? Like the moment you stop it, it it pumps back up. I mean, it's I wouldn't worry about that. But um, the the brain is is far less sensitive. So. That's why there were some questions on if creatine supplementation would actually have an effect. And now there's more and more data coming out that it, it does seem to have an effect, a positive effect, uh, almost solely a positive effect. And I, I should also add for athletes as well, especially people that uh, experience head trauma, uh, traumatic brain injury seems to be helped. This is all mainly from animal models. I should uh, mention that. But uh, the the data has been just incredible in relation to how creatine can actually save neurons uh, from from cell death when when you don't want them to die. So yeah, that's uh, that's that's definitely a, a big one. And, and um, the other one, one second, and it's fascinating yeah. that an oral dose. So the oral absorption, a lot of the th these things can be measured in isolation, but the fact that the oral dosing is utilized and effective is pretty tremendous. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a remarkable molecule. It's uh, it's been, it's been a fascinating uh, discovery. Do we know, do we know the um, dosing? Is it, is it a standard three to five grams for brain health? Thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. I only collaborate with companies that I use their products myself. I'm going to share with you what I'm taking. And that is Megawatt Natural. It is a pre-workout that I absolutely love. I have been using Megawatt for a long time. One scoop has B6, B12, choline, 
It has natural caffeine, about 150 milligrams. It also has a whole coffee fruit extract. It's amazing. You don't have to use the whole thing. You could use half a scoop if you need an afternoon boost. If you are just sick and tired of coffee, um, I don't know if you're like me, but I like to cycle things. Otherwise, I totally burn out. This is a great pre-workout and a great afternoon pick-me-up. Go to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. That's firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. And you will get free U.S. shipping on your order of $75 or more. I think that's still tr- that's still being figured out. I, when it, when I went over the research, I, I have to admit, I, I think I have a bias in that I do think, and I, I don't think I'm alone in this because there have been multiple studies that have used higher doses. They've used 15 or 20 grams of, of creatine and some even go beyond that, like 40 grams. And usually you just end up excreting a lot, a lot more creatinine, which is the degradation product product of, of creatine. But, um, there's so my bias is that I think that as more research comes out, it, there's a potential that we'll discover that maybe higher doses can have a, have a greater impact on the brain, but the current literature does not support that. So as it stands, most of the studies still use five grams, and they do still find an effect. So exactly teasing that out is going to depend on the amount of data input that we're able to put in. And right now it's just too low. That's, that's a a very valuable insight. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Um, the, the second one, the second supplement that has really taken things by storm as of, uh, actually around this time last year was this, uh, this grouping of studies that came out of Baylor, uh, university, uh, the, the medical school there. Which we're here. They were looking so at. You know. ah, My husband is okay. a, a surgical resident well, in Baylor. Yeah. Okay. Well, perfect. Well, the, hey, I mean, the perfect podcast to talk about it then. Um, they, so a group of researchers looked at uh, the combination of glycine and uh, N-acetylcysteine uh, for the abbreviation of GLINAC. Now, the results that they found, they first started in animal models. They found some really tremendous results. And and I know that you had mentioned reactive oxygen species. That's why I'm specifically mentioning this one. Um, the And then they came out with a pilot study. And then they decided to do a full-fledged study uh, because the, the results just translated from animals to this pilot study. And then they did a larger study. And in every single study that they did, Glynac had incredible results. I mean, it had effects on, on, uh, mental ability, the cognition it had a, a, an effect on muscle function. Uh, they didn't measure any power outputs, but they did measure, mm-hmm. uh, strength outputs or just the ability to, to just being able to like, uh, from sit to stand test and things of that nature. They did, um, they looked at, let's see some blood pressure and some heart metrics. Those, those results weren't quite as astounding, but there were some slight improvements. Um, they looked at, uh, DNA damage. So there are different molecules that get secreted by our cells when we experience uh, DNA damage. So they looked at uh, some of those proxy measures, uh, and they found that that was reduced. Uh, they, there was just all kinds of different areas. Insulin resistance was for sure, uh, significantly improved. So, that was uh, and that was done specifically in individuals that were in their seventies. 
And while the sample or the number of individuals in the study was still pretty small, it, the effects were just so tremendous that it was, it's, it, it was an incredibly exciting study. Now, I am still incredibly conservative about it simply because the while Baylor is a fantastic university and I don't I have no reason to to doubt these these results I typically don't really jump on a bandwagon until I've seen another independent group of researchers also show the exact same results so that's one thing the other thing is that for the third study, so the larger study, they did uh, add another group of younger individuals that really, just like, I don't know, I don't remember exactly how many it was, maybe eight or 10 or maybe 20 individuals that were in their 20s and gave them glynac as well, which is again, glycine and N-acetylcysteine. And uh, they only measured for two weeks, but they found no effect. So from the zero week mark to the two week mark, there was zero difference. And I really think that that's, that makes a lot of sense. I would li actually like to see that extended to the full 16 weeks or 24 weeks because the older individuals ended up consuming Glynac for at least 24 weeks, something along those lines. So the effect takes a, a while to develop. But once it's there, it's, it's, it seems to be pretty profound, again, if, if the, the study results end up holding true. But the way I would interpret that is that it really only applies to older individuals. Um, so people, I would say, maybe like 60 years and older, or individuals that may not may be dealing with a particular health condition, it could potentially be beneficial. But there's actually there's no data on that. It's, a lot based on uh, some anecdotes that have been sent my way. I, I get flooded with people telling me that they've been taking Glynac and it's been life changing for them. So, which is fantastic. But um, you know, I, I tend to be again very conservative, very uh, stringent about what does the data show, even though anecdotes tend to jump you know many years ahead of of the data in certain circumstances. You know, I really like how you point that out. You said something here that everybody should listen to is there has to be there there has to be multiple groups it can't just be one study out of one university it has to be replicated the data has to be replicated and um that's a, an important point thank you for that selfishly sure selfishly completely off topic hyaluronic acid which i know you did a video on i have not uh, gotten to that video is it a yes or is it a no that's all i want to know yes or no oh god Ladies, listen <laughs> a, up. A <laughs> listen up. Topical. Getting a scientist. Topical or oral? Was it topical or oral that you? Okay, reviewed? I could say it's it was it was oral that was the most effective. Okay, yeah. But did you look at topical again, ladies? Listen up. This guy, if you want to know good skin products, I have an idea. We should all send him our favorite products, have him review the literature and test it out, and tell us collectively, let's do this if it is going to work. Then we can all save money. Are you <laughs> up for it? That's what I'm trying to do. Okay. I, I, I would definitely be up for it, sure. Oral, for skin, oral hyaluronic acid. Yes? Leaning I towards yes. Just, it's, wait, everyone wants to know. I'm interested. Yeah, I mean, He's a scientist. And so scientists, when you ask them yes or no, <laughs> very challenging. When you put them on the spot, very challenging. Because as an expert, things are very nuanced. That's just the reality of it. Mm. Um, for example, if you were to told me uh, plant or animal protein, uh, you would guess I would say animal. But again, well, depends on do they need fiber? What is it that we're talking about? 
but Nick is much more of a scientific expert than I am. So yes or no? <laughs> so back to the question. Uh, I was, again, I'm leaning towards yes. I, I think that the topical studies, I've, I found some glaring issues in their methodology. I was, I was, uh, I was not impressed. I'll just put it very mildly. I was not impressed by the topical uh, studies. The oral studies were a little more consistent and did show that uh, it seemed to be pretty effective at uh, reducing wrinkling. Um, another one that for for skin products, uh, which I take as well, I've been taking for a number of years as well as a preventative is collagen peptides. There's there's a good amount of evidence now that collagen peptides uh, seem to be quite effective, which usually the pushback that I get for that is, well, then why don't you just take pr uh, protein? Because protein is typically, you know, more, more complete uh, source of the amino acids that make up collagen peptides. And that's a fair point when it comes to muscle mass. Absolutely. Like there's no, there's no competition, but, um, when it comes to skin health, it's, it's not actually the amino acids themselves. It's the stitching of how they're put together. And those can actually get absorbed, uh, by the intestines. Usually think people think that it's just single amino acids. Amino acids for those listening is, is the component that makes up protein. So when you consume protein, you're actually consuming amino acids and the collagen peptides come in these di and tripeptides that can be absorbed in the intestines. And those can actually bind to what are known as fibroblasts, which are these uh, collagen producing cells. And it's not, they, they can use the, the, the components of the collagen peptides for the production of collagen. But what the collagen peptides can also do is bind to actual receptors on the cells and actually uh, change the, the cellular milieu or the, the cellular uh, signaling within the cell to convince it to start to secrete more collagen uh, in in the skin. So that's that's where the uh, evidence is currently leaning towards. So just wanted to throw. That I love there. that. It's an important point because I've had a lot of conversations with Don regarding collagen, and the the one thing that we kept coming back to is its absorption capacity. And what I'm hearing you say is that the the dye and tripeptides are absorbed, and that it does have subsequent impact on skin wrinkling. I'm all about it. Do you know the dosing? Would it be 20 grams? Where, where is the dosing at? Yeah, 10 to 20 grams is is a good good place Easy. for for most I people. love that. There are a whole bunch of of companies that make amazing collagen whether it's First Form or Bubs. They're amazing. And then I will say oral hyaluronic acid. There is a new product out. It's called Glossy. Have you heard of this? I I will get you some. I will no, get you some. My dear friend, Lori Harder, made this product. It's amazing. She gifted it us to the girl. We have a little girls group. Um, and we all got it early. And now I know her secret because it is evidence-based for her oral hyaluronic acid. Yeah. Um, we talked about a lot of stuff, Nick, and you're not off the hook yet. We talked about sarcopenia. Okay. We talked about mitochondria. We talked about exercise. We talked about their influence. We talked about your top two supplements that you feel are worth the the cash, um, which is, which are, you know, creatine and glynac potentially. Do we have any more? Otherwise I want to talk to you about why you do what you do. So this is your last chance to throw out what else do you really, really like? Uh, another one. Yeah. Oh, well actually, yeah. Um, there's, for, for individuals that are struggling, let's say with insulin resistance, which uh, again, tends to increase as, as well with, with age, 
is uh, curcumin. So mm. curcumin, however a person wants to pronounce that, I've heard it like a thousand different ways, curcumin, curcumin. Um, that I've, I, I didn't know much about it at all. And I ended up looking at maybe 15 studies on, on the topic. And the, the evidence was, was overwhelmingly positive in its effects at preventing insulin resistance from going from a pre-diabetic state to a diabetic state. There's this one study where they gave, and it was a pretty large study, it was like 200 individuals that were given curcumin and over nine months. And then they had a, they also had a placebo group and the placebo group, it was like 16% or 18% of individuals ended up going from a pre-diabetic state to a diabetic state over the year that the study was, was, was running. Meanwhile, the people in the curcumin group, there wasn't a single person that, that went from a pre-diabetic state to a diabetic state, which is, which is pretty, I mean, that's a profound protective effect of just one compound. And there was no change in nutrition or training. I mean, it's probably pretty hard to control for those things, but no change. No. So I can't say, I can't say training. So that, that, that's a potential that there were differences between the two because they didn't measure it. Um, however, I would say that once you get up to, to larger and larger uh, sample sizes, a lot of that gets diluted so that like, let's say maybe three people or 10 people are like avid trainers and they're only in one group. Those will tend to get diluted by the 90 other people in, in the group. But it, it's certainly possible that there were differences in that regard because they simply didn't measure it. In terms of nutrition, I don't think there were any differences between the groups. Mm. Very, very interesting. Um, any other last words? No, I think, uh, I think, I think that's it. I think I've, <laughs> I mean, like I said, I could talk about science for, for hours and hours and hours, days, but. I want to know, now we're going to talk about you, which is always a scientist's favorite subject. I will tell you, I am friends <laughs> with a lot of scientists. They avoid the topic of themselves nearly at all costs. Aside from a handful, right? And I'm not talking absolutes, but the majority don't want to talk about themselves. Why do you do what you do? How did you go from getting a, so you went from, you know, psychology to being very interested in exercise to then very deeply involved in basic science, which which is not regular medical science. No offense. It's, it's when we say basic, it's different. It's molecular to becoming a internet sensation. How? Are you embarrassed okay, by that? Wait, all, am I I don't think I, if I am, I'm doing a fantastic <laughs> job because, uh, okay, how and why? I'll go ahead and correct you with the internet sensation. I, I don't think we'll go to that, that extent, but thank you. I appreciate the kind words. Uh, I, I think it just stems from, from one thing is just you, you end up. I'm sure people that are listening that have that have found that thing that they that they just can't stop thinking about, like we were talking about earlier. You just get to a point where uh, you just kind of succumb to this. To this is what my brain keeps coming back to, and that's exactly what what happened to me. I uh, I kept thinking about exactly. I kept at. I, I always allude to this, like when you're like a five-year-old or, you, you know, a five-year-old that just keeps asking you yeah. why, okay, why does this happen? Exactly. Why, why, why? And it's just nonstop. And that's exactly how my brain works. It's just, I'm, I'm not satisfied with, you know, uh, 
you know, the, the, the muscles are connected with the, the nerve. I, I need to know exactly, like if I were to keep zooming in, why, 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 why just continuously zoom in and understand on a molecular level, why these things are happening. Um, that's, that's what continues to fuel me is this, this inexhaustible, uh, curiosity and, and, and physionic. What, what I started was, you know, it was completely selfish at first. I just, I just thought to myself, like, I'm, I'm annoying my professors, so I might as well just start learning on my own and then, um, and then start putting things out, uh, for people to, to also reap the benefit. If, if, if I'm going to be reaping the benefit, I might as well put my notes up on online and, uh, have other people enjoy as well or, or suffer with me. So you did it, you did it selfishly for yourself at first and then realized that there was a massive need to get good information. It's fascinating. The amount of scientific information out there now is more than ever before. When I was doing it, we had to go to the library, go to the card catalog, pull out the, <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm not that old, but pull out these these journals. It, it wasn't as accessible as it is now. And because of its accessibility, with accessibility, I mean, you can appreciate this. Good studies take a long time. And we're seeing whether it's because of the influx of data accessibility, there's a lot more studies coming out and it does become challenging to be able to shift through or um, sift through what is good, what is valuable, and how do we even understand it? And I, I mean, how many hours a week are you spending doing what you're doing, reading the literature? I think I usually lock myself up for maybe 10 hours a day, just constantly reading literature. I, it's, I, I, I even work on the weekends uh, sometimes. It's just, but again, I mean, when, when you found that thing that, that makes you, you just can't stop thinking about it. It, uh, it, it's not a sacrifice. It's not like, uh, it, it's just a part of who you are. So you, you just end up doing it. I just, I just love it. it. And again, I found your, your information and then the way you do it so valuable. And I know that my audience is going to find you and the information and the work that you're doing incredibly valuable. You have a ton of free content. And not only that, you have a ton of free content. You also have paid content. Um, you're probably so busy with inquiries, but there's a, a whole host of ways someone could uh, essentially pick your brain and help understand science better. I, I just wanted to say thank you. I believe that you are an absolute superstar and you are going to change. Here's what I think. I think that you're providing a service that is so articulate that you are going to change the expectation and the standard for what is provided um, to the general public. And I, you're hearing it here first, people. Follow this guy and you will see exactly what I'm talking about. Nick, thank you so much. Hey, I, I deeply, deeply appreciate you having me on. I, it was so much fun and uh, I have so much respect for you. And I, I thank you. I, I can't say it enough. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended 
to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.